DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. I invite the CMA to adopt the draft decision entitled Outcome of the First Global Stocktake, contained in document FCCCMA-2023-L.17. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. The UN Climate Summit reaches a deal. But is it a good one? We'll be speaking to David Tong of Oil Change International to get his verdict from Dubai. Also on the show, Russian environmentalists, an unexpectedly hopeful story, and France's immigration bill. Why the holdup? Those stories and more coming up on the programme. We should be proud of our historic achievements. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is a balanced plan that tackles emissions. It is built on common ground. That's the president of the UN's COP28 climate talks, Sultan Al-Jaber, also, by the way, CEO of ADNOC, the United Arab Emirates state oil company, announcing to exhausted delegates on Wednesday that a deal had finally been reached. Controversially, the Pacific Island delegation, representing some of the countries most existentially challenged by climate change, were not present in the room when the deal was announced. When they did arrive, the lead delegate from Samoa, Anne Rasmussen, had this to say. We have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual, when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. We referenced the science throughout the text, but then we refrained from an agreement to take the relevant action in order to act in line with what the science says we have to do. So is the deal, which recognises the need to transition away from fossil fuels but is sketchy on crucial issues such as finance and adaptation, a good one? A question I put to David Tong, Global Industry Lead at the Environmental Research and Advocacy Organisation Oil Change International, when I spoke to him on the line from Dubai. There is a lot of bad in this deal and one bright spot. The bright spot is for the first time ever, there is recognition that we need to transition away from fossil fuels. The problem is that that's surrounded by a lot of references to dangerous distractions and false solutions. It's lacking finance. And there isn't a clear call for equity for developing countries. So failings there. There is, however, language on the phasing out of fossil fuels. Um, Now, this sounds obvious, but actually this is quite an achievement, isn't it? Perhaps you could explain to me, uh, well, some some of the struggles that have gone on uh, behind the scenes uh, around the inclusion of clear wording on fossil fuels. For over 30 years, this process has focused on emissions, not on the things that we're burning that are causing those emissions. The Paris Agreement doesn't mention oil, gas or coal even once. And so over the last decade or more since Copenhagen, civil society around the world has taken the fight to the oil and gas industry, from divestment campaigns in the boardrooms, protests in the streets, blockades at coal mines and against oil infrastructure like pipelines. And finally, this fight has made it from the streets into the halls of the United Nations with 
Pacific countries and Latin American nations leading in, in a call to phase out fossil fuels. That was joined by over 140 countries in these negotiations. And I mean, that fight has also made it to a COP taking place at the heart of a, a petro state. The COP president, uh, Al Jaber, also being the head of the UEA state oil firm. Perhaps you could uh, comment on that uh, and, and give me some context. The president of this COP is the executive director of ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And so it is incredibly significant to see reference to transitioning away from fossil fuels agreed, particularly at this COP. The president has made explicit comments, though, which are unexpected for the CEO of an oil company, that the phase-out of fossil fuels is inevitable. And I think the decision made today, despite its many flaws, has made that even more inevitable. And there's a sort of an interesting dynamic there. I mean, you know, obviously inside Europe, we're very much, um, you know, tuned in to, to the sort of the European element in all this. And the EU's climate commissioner, Vipke Hustra, uh, he, he himself um, has a CV which includes Shell and McKinsey. So are we seeing sort of a, a pattern here? I mean, are we are we looking perhaps at a, a sort of a social tipping point where we have people who you would previously have expected to be very much working against the interests of climate resolution actually seeing the need to work for it or is that too optimistic i think that's too optimistic to call a pattern now most oil and gas executives are still trying to squeeze every last dollar out of their sunset industry there's no major oil and gas company according to our analysis that comes anywhere close to aligning to the bottom line needed to match the ambition of the paris agreement is there a sense of disconnect between the COP process and the actual stakes that the scientists are telling us are at play? The United Nations follows governments and the COP, so the COP process follows governments. And governments, if we're lucky, follow people. There's a disconnect between the science and what a number of governments are doing around the world. And there's a disconnect between what people are calling for and what a number of governments are doing. The impacts are here all around us. We're seeing them now. The people and communities that have done the least to cause this crisis are already suffering as we speak. And the UN is now finally catching up to what people have known for many, many years. We need to end the era of fossil fuels. And research that uh, you published alongside uh, Pacific Islands Climate Network show that over 127 countries, so that's over 70% of parties to the UN Framework Convention, actively want phasing out of fossil fuels to be part of a, an internationally binding agreement. This is actually quite new, isn't it? Can you perhaps talk to me about, about uh, that research and uh, w what it tells us about where we are at the moment? People pushed very hard this year, from protests in New York in September to lobbying governments to all kinds of actions, calling for their governments to take this seriously, alongside a huge diplomatic push, primarily especially led by Pacific Island nations, calling for a first a fossil-free Pacific and a global call for a transition away from fossil fuels. This culminated with, I think our latest number is now 142 countries before this morning's agreement that had called for, at some time in the last two weeks, a phase-out of fossil fuels. 
that's a, an extraordinary momentum and one that we can expect only to continue building after this morning's decision. Right. And that building uh, towards COP29, uh, which will be hosted by Azerbaijan, another petro state, is that a problem? The UN climate negotiations does not have a conflict of interest policy. That means that there is no policy to determine whether there's a conflict of interest for a host country, being a country that produces oil and gas, for example, nor to ban fossil fuel lobbyists or climate deniers or PR firms that work for oil and gas companies from attending these conferences. That lack of a conflict of interest policy is a huge problem. But I wouldn't signal a single out Azerbaijan for criticism. It's not just one petrostate we're talking about here. In the years to come, David, when we look back on this particular COP, how do you think it will be remembered? This COP will be remembered as a moment when Pacific nations called for what was right and the consensus did not include them, where they achieved a step forward when we needed a giant leap. David Tong is Global Industry Lead for Oil Change International, the Environmental Research and Advocacy Organisation. Civil society, as we've just heard there, has a crucial role to play in holding governments to account on climate change. In Russia, that is not an easy task at the moment. Over the past year, Russia has jailed anti-war activists and shuttered NGOs, including environmental organisations such as the World Wildlife Fund and Greenpeace. But, as Levi Bridges reports, many environmental activists are still managing to successively create change. Earlier this year, protesters in southern Russia gathered on a dirt road leading to a landfill that they say is hazardous to human health. Their goal was to pressure regional authorities to shut the landfill down. But soon, police arrived to clear the road. A bystander filmed the video as the officers wrestled with the protesters. Soil near the landfill has been found to contain high levels of mercury and arsenic. One protester, who, like other people in the story, asked not to use their name because they fear retaliation, says the landfill is making people sick. In my family alone, four people have cancer. This landfill has polluted our water, and it's threatening the health of my children. I can't move. I have no place to go. And besides, I grew up here, and I don't want to leave. And it's not just locals that are concerned. Recently, a group of Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine filmed a video calling on President Putin to close the dump. The soldiers' video is just one example amongst many. People all over Russia are speaking out right now to save the environment. Vitaly Servetnik is a Russian environmental activist. He says the closure of environmental organizations, like Greenpeace, is one reason Russians are taking action. When people see that these organizations are not able to protect in a proper way, then they, they started acting themselves. But this work is still incredibly difficult. This year, dozens of environmental activists in Russia have been fined for holding protests or rallies, and some have even been physically attacked. But Servetnik says that activists have achieved many victories as well. 
which says that it's not only possible to protest and resist, but it's also possible to achieve and protect environment and your environmental rights in Russia. Komi Republic is a region in northern Russia that's home to a vast network of rivers and oil pipelines that frequently leak. Activists posted a video online of a river there covered in a black oil slick. Locals here recently brought their concerns about the oil spills to a representative from the Russian company Luke Oil at a public hearing filmed by journalists. Would you want your children to be exposed to toxic chemicals, one woman asks. Locals here have taken their concerns all the way to Russia's federal government. They recently drafted a bill that would require oil companies to better maintain their pipelines. Russian lawmakers are soon going to consider a vote on the legislation. One activist I spoke with actually thinks it might pass. The environment can unite people with different political and religious beliefs, and even those who have different views on the war. The need to protect the environment can still bring them together. One example of this is a village outside Moscow, where a businessman recently tried to start an illegal development project on public land. A man from the village filmed a video of a section in the forest where all the trees had been cut down. Bonfires blaze where loggers burn the wood. Businessmen in Russia often just pay bribes to authorities to take over public land like this. But locals, like the man who filmed the video, documented what was happening and took their complaints to the regional government. We thought it was a hopeless case for us, but the more we had shown evidence of how much the forest had been burned, the more they were keen to cooperate with us. The authorities then took legal action to stop the project. These successes are what motivates environmental activists to continue their work despite intimidation. The locals in southern Russia, who are trying to close the landfill in their town, also recently had some success. This fall, federal authorities opened an investigation into the landfill. One of the protesters says they're not afraid to keep fighting. You can't stay quiet when they're trying to kill you. And they are killing us with this toxic landfill. So we're fighting for our lives. Even though Russia's government is still putting pressure on activists, it's not stopping many from fighting to protect the environment. Levi Bridges, DW. You'll find more environment stories, including analysis from COP28 on DW's environment pages, as well as on the podcasts on the Green Fence and Living Planet. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Poison in the water, still the fact remains. You deny it ever happened, deny it ever will, deny it ever happened, but it keeps on happening still. There's poison in the water, poison in the rain. Poison in the water, but still the fact remains. You deny it ever happened, deny it ever will, deny it ever happened, but it keeps on happening still. It's been a big week for controversial immigration legislation in Europe. In the UK, the Conservative government's headline-grabbing plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda cleared a new parliamentary hurdle. Meanwhile, 
In France, politicians on both the left and right of the political spectrum combined forces to pass a motion blocking all discussion of President Emmanuel Macron's proposed immigration bill. So, what's been going on? Lisa Louis reports from Paris. Here's the latest hurdle for French President Emmanuel Macron to get through one of his flagship legislations. On Monday, an unlikely coalition of left-wing, right-wing and far-right parliamentarians voted to reject debating a new immigration bill before discussions could even start. A first since 1998. The draft law now has to first go back into a mixed parliamentary commission. The government had hoped to avert this. It had toughened its draft to win over conservative Republicans who support Macron needs to get the bill through parliament. And so its latest version would have fast-tracked asylum procedures and shortened delays for appeals, made family reunifications more complicated and restricted the possibility of obtaining a visa for medical reasons. It would also have included the power to expel immigrants who arrived in France before the age of 13 if they had committed a crime. The government was equally planning to drop or at least considerably tone down a provision for automatic green cards for people working in sectors with a labour shortage. But these changes weren't enough for the Conservatives and the far right, who were pleading for even tougher rules. They were joined in the vote to reject discussions by left-wing politicians who, on the contrary, want immigration to be made easier. Lisa Farron is from the Paris-based CIMAD, an NGO providing support for refugees and migrants. The government had promised a balanced bill, and yet the new rules will almost exclusively restrict immigrants' rights and make it even more complicated for them to get legal residence permits. The CIMAD other aid groups and immigrants themselves have been taking to the streets over the past few weeks to make this point. Just Sunday last week, thousands of people walked through the streets of Paris holding up signs saying no to racism and equal rights for everybody. Right at the front of this group is Ahmad Asibi, a 33-year-old Malian who arrived in France five years ago. Ever since, he has been working as a cleaner and lately a dishwasher. Not under his own name, though. Benefiting from a legal loophole, he has been using other people's papers. Most of us undocumented immigrants are using this method, but it means we're paying social insurance fees and taxes without benefiting from services such as regular public health care, like French citizens. Ahmada fears the new law could worsen things. President Emmanuel Macron's government treats us as if we were nothing, although we're doing all the dirty work. At construction sites, including the ones for the Paris Olympics next summer, in restaurants and as cleaners. This country has the founding principles, liberty, equality, fraternity, but it outright rejects us. But Alexis Zahar, parliamentarian for the government party Renaissance in the Essonne department just south of Paris, says the new bill is needed. 
Tous les ans, on a besoin, on a la nécessité d'expulser à peu près 4000 personnes. Every year, we need to expel about 4000 illegal immigrants who have committed crimes. And that will be possible with this new law. At the same time, we want to attract those who come here and work. This will be a highly efficient law. And yet, for Hervé Lebras, a historian and demographer at Paris-based School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences, EHESS, any such effort will be in vain anyway. The bill is completely useless and will have practically no impact on the number of migrants coming in per year. It only gives politicians from the far right to the far left a platform to express their stance. If you look at the immigration figures under past governments, you'll see that they are uncorrelated to politics. Alain Fontaine is the owner of restaurant Le Musturier in central Paris and head of France's Association of Restaurant Owners, AFMR. He tells me bars and restaurants could no longer function without foreign workers who represent about a quarter of their workforce. His own 27 employees include 12 foreign workers. We need immigrants, also as our own youth prefer to work in the digital sector or jobs linked to the protection of the environment. They no longer want to do the tough jobs. But re-establishing the work permit for those employed in sectors with a labour shortage would hardly be to Ahmada's liking. I'm meeting him again at his home, a 15-square-metre studio apartment in the eastern Parisian suburb of Montreuil he's sharing with an uncle and a cousin. This rule would enshrine modern slavery into law, as we would need to work in that one sector to keep it you'd still be at the boss's mercy. We want the government to legalize all of us so we can choose the job we'd like to do. Then Ahmada takes out his phone and looks at photos of himself from five years ago after he had reached Spain from Morocco on a small inflatable boat. He calls the crossing, which almost took a whole day, the most difficult moment in his life. We were 64 people on that boat, including 14 women and children aged 3 and 5, and we all thought that was it. We would never see our families again. Once you've survived this, you don't just give up. I'm determined to fight for a better future. The next protests against the immigration bill are already scheduled. As things stand, opposition politicians don't seem in the slightest more inclined to support the government's initiative. Lisa Louis, DW, Paris. We have music and culture coming up for you in the second half. First, though, just time for this. This week, a mythology question. The goddess Europa wasn't actually from Europe. Where was she from? Was it the Middle East, Africa or Australia? Head over to Spotify to take part in the poll. Meanwhile, congratulations to everyone last week who knew that the Irish folk punk band The Pogues is so named because it sounds like Kiss My Bottom in Irish. Actually, uh, bottom is a polite version of the word. You can probably guess what I mean there. 
Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com. Do drop us a line if you have any comments or ideas for future shows. This is Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. In the next half hour, Deja Vucic, Serbia's elections all about the one man who isn't standing. All of the lists, when they're presented, the only program that they have to offer is Aleksandr Vucic is bad, he's, in, he's a tyrant, he's an autocrat. Passport loophole, meet the Argentinians claiming Italian nationality and Eurotalent, how EU funding is helping put up-and-coming artists on the map. From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe. Serbia goes to the polls this weekend in an election race which has got Balkans watchers more excited than usual. And that's because for the first time in years, the opposition has managed to come together in an attempt to challenge the hegemony of Aleksandar Vucic's ruling SNS or Serbian Progressive Party. Vucic himself is not on the ballot, but that doesn't stop the elections from being seen as a referendum on him and his politics. Earlier, I spoke to our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay, to find out more. A conversation which began with a sense of déjà vu or déjà vu Cic. Surely it wasn't that long ago since the last lot of Serbian elections. It does happen rather a lot. It's a mere 20 months since the last election. It would be very tempting for the voters to feel fatigued by the, the frequency of these elections, which have you know come around this year, last year, 2020. But... There is something a bit different about the elections this time round, and that's the fact that we have a fairly united opposition, not uniquely so, there are actually 18 different party lists, but there's one big opposition list this time round, and that's a new feature. Right, well, I really want to come on to that uh, that list uh, under the title of Stop the Violence in a minute, but first of all, let's just talk about what's the same. Aleksandr Vucic, the man who's governed Serbia for over a decade now, he's not actually a candidate himself in these elections because he comfortably secured his second mandate as president last year. But their outcome and the performance of his ruling SNS party is very much being seen as a referendum on him and the direction in which uh, he's taken Serbia. Now, you guys, I know, have had occasion to observe him at rather close quarters over the years. Who is he? Aleksandr Vucic is a very interesting character. I mean, he, if you go back to the 1990s, 
Um, when he was in his early 20s, he served as information minister under the notorious President Slobodan Milosevic. And he was a member in those days of an, an outfit called the Serbian Radical Party, which is still around, which is a, a Serbian ultranationalist party. And in 2008, Mr. Vucic and some of his colleagues in, in the, the Radical Party had an almost Damascene conversion. And they realized that they were on completely the wrong path. And they set up this new party called the Progressive Party, whose initials in Serbia are SNS. And they were saying, we made some terrible mistakes. So Mr. Vucic has said this to me in person, you know, we made some terrible mistakes in our politics, which were very bad for the country. And the Progressive Party says that it's in favour of Serbia joining the European Union and that it wants to reform Serbia so that it's a a non-corrupt, clean country which undertakes all the reforms necessary for joining the European Union and that's what's going to take the country forward. Of of course, these sort of pronouncements by Mr Vucic produce, uh, at the very least, raised eyebrows from his opponents, but it's gone down very well with the voters over the past 11 years. They've made him successively Deputy Prime Minister, Prime Minister, and then President, and he's the central figure in Serbian political life. And I think this is quite interesting. I was speaking to Prime Minister Anabanovic the other day, um, who's a member of the, the Progressive Party as well. And she's been Prime Minister since 2017. And even she can't stop talking about Mr Vucic. And she said that that's what happens with the opposition as well, that everything, the whole focus of the campaign is about Mr Vucic. All of the lists, when they're presented, the only program that they have to offer is Alexander Vucic is bad, he's in He's a tyrant, he's an autocrat, um, you know, this government is bad, they're not doing anything, you know, this is all a scam, you know, it's not real, you know, even though the, the average salary is 830 euros net in December this year, and it used to be 330 euros net when they were in power, well, you know, 330 euros is better than one, uh, 830, so... You know, that that is basically all of their political campaigning, all of their lists are against us. Right. But I mean, nevertheless, Guy, domestically, over that decade in which Vucic has been in power, uh, we've seen developments in civil society, which many commentators have, have seen as concerning. Freedom House, for example, classifies Serbia now as a partly free state with low rankings on civil liberties and political rights, media freedom also an issue that is flagged up. How fair do you think the elections are likely to be? Well, the elections are going to be monitored. On polling day itself, generally, past performance tends to indicate that uh, people look at what's going on in the polling stations and say, well, there might be a few irregularities, but largely the election is free and fair. But there's other things going on as well. And it's it's not a particular secret that international groups and local groups both say there's been an issue with media capture and state capture. Let's talk about the opposition. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, the sort of the game changer this year is that we actually have an opposition that has come together uh, under the title Stop the Violence. And for once, it is expected that Vucic will be at least given a respectable run for his money. What's changed and what's the violence that the opposition are referring to in their choice of name there? So originally these started off as protests, Serbia against violence, and it was a reaction to the two mass shootings in May, which took place on consecutive days in May, even though they were completely unrelated events. 
And one of these mass shootings was at a school in Belgrade, which resulted in the deaths of, of 10 people, including um, nine school children. And then there was uh, another shooting a following day in a village on the outskirts of the Belgrade municipality. And another nine people died in that mass shooting. And there was such horror, such outrage, and such a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that people were looking around for what could possibly have brought this about, because mass shootings are not something which happen in Serbia very often. And a lot of people decided that it was something to do with the culture of violence in the country that was being fostered by the governing party and those who were their allies in the media. So they talked about not just the physical violence which they'd seen with the shootings, but the rhetorical violence on television where opponents of the government uh, were belittled and attacked in very strong terms, and also in the type of programming that was on TV, a lot of reality shows in which physical violence was was tolerated, if not encouraged. And people marched on the streets about those issues in their tens of thousands. And sooner or later, the uh, the opposition parties attached themselves to that and then coalesced around this cause. And it's a, a minor miracle in Serbian political terms. The opposition's been atomized over the past decade since uh, the Democratic Party lost power in 2012 and splintered into various groups. All the different egos in that party set up their own parties. This time, though, all of those different splinter groups, more or less, have come together. And any party which is pro-European Union, so in favour of Serbia's membership of the European Union, has got together under this umbrella of Serbian against violence, with one or two exceptions, um, including some new parties um, as well, some, some of the environmental and green parties which have sprung up in Serbia in the last couple of years. And this election monitor, Sarta, and their programme director, Rasha Nedelkov, says it's a major achievement to actually see this united party list for the opposition. Having them rallied around one idea and being on one, uh, on one list is huge success given how much effort, how much resources were invested to divide, to decompose, to alienate, basically, opposition over the course of past uh, years in Serbia. In terms of Serbian foreign policy, there are two sort of issues that are always key, aren't there? There's relations with Kosovo, which Serbia still doesn't recognise, and then there's the tightrope act between the EU and Russia. What's at stake in these elections in terms of, of those two sort of crucial issues? You know, it's very hard to know exactly where the Progressive Party stand on membership of the European Union. As I mentioned, Mr Vucic, when he broke away from the Radical Party and, and co-founded the, the Progressive Party, from the off he was saying that the Progressive Party is a pro-EU party. It's in favour of Serbia joining the European Union. And that's been reinforced just in the last couple of days uh, by Mr Vucic, by the Progressive Party, this is our stance. At the same time, Mr Vucic will come out and say things like, well, if they make the condition of Serbia joining the European Union, that we have to recognise Kosovo's independence, or that we have to allow Kosovo to join the United Nations, then we won't be able to join the European Union, because that's a very much a red line for us. So, so that's there. But if you look at any of the political parties in Serbia, none of them are really going to come out and say out loud, we think we need to reach 
an accommodation with Kosovo, which means recognition of its independence. It's very problematic for a lot of people in Serbia, and suggesting you're going to find some other solution to the Kosovo issue, which might involve recognition or even de facto recognition, is not going to be a vote winner. So nobody's doing that. Now, I'm not going to ask you to predict the results of the election, Guy, but given all that you've said about the significance of the opposition coming together like this, um, do you think that it would be sort of safe to say that whatever the results at the weekend, this is an election which will have fundamentally changed Serbian politics, perhaps even Serbia? It's an interesting question. When you've got all these opposition groups coming together and people are going into an election campaign, Obviously, nobody's going to go into a campaign and say, we don't expect to win. But the Serbia Against Violence electoral list and the parties within it, and I've spoken to people from several parties within that grouping, they're aware that they're up against it. They know that the Progressive Party have got the advantage in terms of the media, they've got the advantage in there that they're the incumbents, and that the opposition until now haven't presented a very coherent proposition to the voters. So they are viewing this as not necessarily one that they've got to win, but one where they've got to show some progress. And and one of those party uh, leaders who feels that way is uh, Biljana Djordjevic, who's the co-leader of the Green Left Front. I don't think the changes can happen overnight. We in Green Left Front believe in changes bottom-up from cities, from municipalities. That's why winning the Belgrade elections is so important. But also you have now elections in Kragovac. It's also a big city. It's, you know, it will be very interesting if you win in Kragovac or maybe Kruševac. And then in six months you win in Novi Sad. That's the second biggest city. Niš, the third biggest city. And then things change. If you have one-third of MPs in parliament, just Serbia against violence, with other opposition MPs, things change. So that's Biljana Djordjevic uh, from the Green Left Front, which is one of the members of the uh, Serbia Against Violence electoral list, um, very much viewing this as a, as a stepping stone election rather than perhaps the end of the journey. Well, Guy, it's been great to have you as our guide on this stage of the journey and uh, no doubt uh, into the future as well. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delorne there. For our next story, we're heading off to San Lucido, a tiny little village in Calabria in the south of Italy. Over the past three years, more than 400 Argentinians, who can trace their lineage back to Italian ancestors, have applied for a passport there. But why San Lucido? Angelo van Schaik has been investigating for us. Camila and Nahuel are in their early 20s and were born near Buenos Aires in Argentina. They've been in Italy for a few months now. They already have their legal residency in the village of San Lucido, but are now standing in line with a big pile of documents at the local registry office, hoping for an Italian passport. These are the documents we just handed in at the registry office. Fiscal number, housing contract, the registration of that contract, the residency, quite a list. Camila and Nahuel are two of the total more than 400 Argentinians with Italian ancestors who in the last few years have applied for Italian citizenship in San Lucido. San Lucido is a village of around 6,000 inhabitants on the west coast of Calabria. 
Cosimo Di Tommaso is mayor of San Lucido. La normativa italiana consente a chiunque. According to Italian law, anyone who has an Italian ancestor can apply for citizenship. They chose San Lucido or other villages in the surroundings because they find a standard of life they can afford here. De Tommaso has been mayor for two years now. Although the presence of the young Argentinians is good for the local economy, he wasn't really pleased with them at the beginning. When I was first elected mayor, I stopped the influx of South American immigrants. It often happened that one person showed up and applied for Italian citizenship for several other people, so I wanted to know what was happening. I made the rule that anyone who wants to apply for an Italian passport has to do so in person, and I created a special counter for them. Every Friday morning, they can come here and apply for citizenship. Virginia is waiting in line together with her boyfriend, Ippolito. They are both design graduates. The big question is, why do so many young, well-educated Argentinians flee their country? The inflation is around 10% per month. Last year, December, we started to buy euros, which is not possible at a normal bank. You have to go to sketchy money exchange offices. In December, we paid 292 pesos for one euro. When we left in May, we paid 420 pesos. And now, the price is almost 1,000 pesos for one euro. As soon as the Argentinians obtain their Italian passport, which usually takes around five or six months, they leave for other parts of Italy or Europe. Virginia and Ippolito want to go to Milan, design capital of the world. Juan Tuninetti is one of the few who stayed in San Lucido. Together with his Brazilian girlfriend Manu, he runs Latinos, a little company that helps South Americans navigate Italian bureaucracy. We help Argentinians with their immigration. We tell them what they have to do and what documents they have to bring. We also help them with housing during the application period. And of course, we charge a little commission for that. It depends a bit on the situation. But for one person, the whole package costs around 2,300 euros. Juan Tuninetti is 37 and worked in tourism in Brazil and the US. Three years ago, he became the first Argentinian to apply for an Italian passport in San Lucido. Argentina is the country in South America with the most people of Italian descent. Almost everyone has at least one Italian ancestor. Originally, my family was from Piemonte in the north of Italy, like many people in Cordoba, where I'm from in Argentina. A hundred years ago, whole villages got on the boat in Genoa. At the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, millions of Italians left to seek their fortunes in other parts of the world. The main waves of emigration were to the United States, Australia and South America. Roughly 60% of all Argentinians have some Italian blood. Nahuel Pairo's great-grandfather left from central Italy. Francesco. 
nato a casa Languida in Chieti. His great-great-grandfather was called Donato di Francesco, was born in Chieti, not far from Rome. Domingo di Francesco, his great-grandfather, was born in Buenos Aires in 1911. His grandfather, Juan Carlos di Francesco, was also born in Buenos Aires, as was his mother, who was born in 1979. There's an uninterrupted bloodline up until Nahuel Pardo himself, who was also born in Buenos Aires in 2000. This should be enough for an Italian passport. Argentinian immigrants to San Lucido can attend an Italian language class, offered for free by the local church. Retired Italian language teacher Rosa is their teacher. Their knowledge of the Italian language is very little or non-existent. It's a tough job to teach them the language, but not impossible. They're very motivated and smart kids. Most of them have university degrees. And on top of that, they're very keen to learn the language. Manuel and Camilla, you both have Italian ancestors. Was there any Italian spoken at home? No, no one spoke Italian at home. At Camilla's, they did. I have four Italian great-grandparents, but unfortunately I never met them. My grandfather did speak Italian, but very little with us. Five years ago, he went back to Italy for a visit, and he was still able to talk to his cousins. Under the current right of blood legislation, someone who is born in South America and happens to have an Italian ancestor can quite easily obtain an Italian passport. While someone who is born in Italy, but whose parents are from a country outside of the EU, has a lot more difficulty obtaining Italian citizenship. Isn't that a bit strange? Mayor De Tommaso. That is absolutely true, but Italian law allows it. All documents have been left at the registry office. Everything seems okay. Now it's just a question of waiting, says Nahuel. Probably around three months. <laughs> three months means the end of December, so it would be a fantastic Christmas gift. In the last two years, the amount of Argentinians that obtained Italian citizenship has doubled. In 2021, last data available, 3,669 Argentinians became Italian citizens. In 2020, it was only 1,717. Given the precarious economic situation in many South American countries, more and more young people are seeking a way out. And having an Italian ancestor is one of them. A gateway to the European Union and for some, the US. According to the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, 80 million South Americans could potentially be eligible to apply for an Italian passport. And that might become a problem. Angelo Waschaik, DW, San Lucido. Just a quick reminder of our feedback address, Inside Europe at DW.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe.
Finally, this half hour, music. We were lucky enough to be given a sneak preview of a report due to be released in January by Live Europe, an EU-funded platform supporting new European artists to tour in some of Europe's most iconic venues. The report looks at the European music scene in 2023, a crucial year in terms of gauging the health of the culture sector as it emerges from a pandemic and navigates the ongoing financial crisis. To find out more, I spoke to Live Europe's Elise Famgia. So 2023 was quite a particular year because we see that the consecutive crises that, that we've been facing are, have been really taking uh, its toll on music venues because, of course, you had COVID, which led to closure of venues and staff shortage. And then you had the soaring energy crisis, which also led to huge costs with the inflation. So let's say, yeah, let's say you're, you're a music venue in, in Belgium and, and you want to, to invest in booking talents from uncharted European territories. There's going to be huge, uh, costs when it comes to to travel and accommodation and it's often bands that you know the audience don't really know so it already represents a huge financial risk and on top of it with all the crisis that we've had it's it's even worse and and that's what our figures show which is where you come in because you then thanks to eu funding are able to offset some of that risk yeah, definitely. So, um, and that's, that's the true added value, um, of, of our project is thanks to the funding we receive from the EU, we, we provide, uh, bonuses, um, to, to help our venues organize concerts with new up and coming talent. So typically you see that pre live Europe, um, our, our venues were organizing on average, let's say, 22 concerts with emerging European artists on a year. And thanks to our projects, they're able to do 42% more emerging European bands. What we see is it's not a lot of funding, but the impact it has is tremendous. Can you give me an example of some of that talent? If you had to pick some of your favorite sort of acts that you've supported this year, what would you go for? Uh, on a yearly basis, we support uh, approximately uh, 600 uh, concerts every year. So it, it's a lot of different European bands and there's a lot of diversity. One of the talents that uh, has been really booming uh, this year, I want to say, is this uh, actually Belgian band um, called Charlotte uh, Adigeri and Bodis Popul. When I woke up early this morning Maybe you could give me a couple more examples um, and um, yeah, let's bring in a bit of regional diversity as well. Let's, let's get, get a sense of the spectrum. Mara Rey, she's, a, she's a, actually a Lisbon-based artist that uh, has been really growing over the past years. I think it's typically the kind of music that even if you don't understand the lyrics, you, you just really get the sense of, of what she wants to convey. And she's singing in Portuguese as well, which is, you know, really... Exactly. In. Yeah, so we've, we've sort of got music as a, an ambassador for sort of linguistic diversity and, and everything else. Exactly. And this other band that we sent uh, we sent you a link of is Petit uh, Pele from, from Croatia. And I love them because for me, it's really... They're really the, the Tamim Pala of Croatia. I think it's, I think what they do, the tracks they deliver are so powerful and so upbeat. Uh, I think they're also really growing at the moment. And uh, yeah, I think that's definitely one to listen. 
listen, just to come back to this question of, of funding, because uh, we are, of course, um, heading into 2024, which is a crucial year because it is the year of European elections. I imagine that you will be following this with interest because your funding is, of course, EU funding. Exactly. So we, we launched this project, Live Europe, almost 10 years ago now, uh, and it wouldn't have been possible without the support of the EU. Live Europe can exist thanks to funding from the Creative Europe Programme, which is uh, the European funding programme for culture and uh, creative sectors. It represents only 0.2% of the budget of the EU. Uh, so it's it's really a drop in the ocean, and yet it's small funding, but it has great impact. And I think that uh, right now we're indeed in a phase where we will be voting for the European elections, and the ballot that we will cast will have a, a, an important impact on the kind of Europe that we want to project for the future, where the taxpayer money of all Europeans uh, will be invested. And I think it's, uh, yeah, sometimes um, sometimes the European elections are, are not the ones that people go to the most. But I think it's, uh, yeah, important to, to remember that, yeah, European funding also serves culture, also uh, serves to, to fund projects on a day-to-day basis uh, that has an impact on our lives. And yeah, if we want to have a, a stronger Europe for culture, I think it's important to think where we will cast our ballot for the European elections. I was speaking to Elise Famgier from the Live Europe platform. Check them out at liveeurope.eu if you want to discover more cracking EU tunes like that one. That is, however, all that we have time for today. The programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Jürgen Kuhn and Lars Schlemmer. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.